There are people who like non-stress. I wake up, I grow, I excel in times of high stress. Welcome to the season finale of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of the best moments and the most memorable conversations with the attorneys featured on the podcast so far. So buckle up, it's gonna be a wild ride. Though I don't perceive it to be stressful walking into a courtroom, other people perceive it to be very stressful. To me, I walk into a courtroom, that's my nirvana. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. As we close out the first season of the podcast, we're looking back at the game-changing conversations we've had with some of the most iconic attorneys in the nation. From the mindsets that set these market leaders apart to the marketing strategies that took them to the next level and everything in between, this episode has it all. In the law business, there's two ways to handle it. You can either let your practice run you or you can run your practice. And I'm always on the offensive. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. I've been fortunate to sit down with a number of incredible law firm owners this year. The guests we bring onto the show are market leading firm owners who put themselves in a league of their own. My goal with this podcast is to pull back the curtain on these market leaders from how they think to how they lead and the decisions that have gotten them to where they are today. And what better guest to start this roundup with than episode one, John Morgan himself. You can't teach hungry. It's just there. It's lucky. But the thing that irritates me about people is they want to They'll say, well, you know, well, by God, you got up out of bed at three o'clock in the morning. and You went and did it. You know, by God, you did it. But I was built that way. They go, yeah, but you did it. You actually did the work. Well, yeah, but some people aren't capable of it. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, they are. No, they're not. We're animals. We're no different than animals in the jungle. In the jungle today, a lion will be born. And that lion is the king of the jungle just because he or she's a lion. The same day, a sloth will be born. Okay? Same day, same jungle, same deal. That sloth is so fucked you can't even describe it because he's a sloth. All he can do is barely muster up enough energy to come down the tree, grab some berries, go to the bathroom, and go back up and go to sleep. There's two different mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the stubborn mule. They're just built that they cannot get up. I'm lucky that I was a lion instead of the sloth, and I'm lucky that I got the genes to be the hardworking mule that'll get up in the snow. And by the way, once I got through with the paper route, I went and shoveled snow. You know, I wasn't done. I didn't go by. I mean, I went to the, I went to the toddle house and got some bacon and eggs, but then I was back out shoveling snow because the day wasn't over, but that's how I was built. And so that gives you such a great advantage. And it's totally out of Shaquille O'Neal cannot be Shaquille if he's not seven foot three. If he's built like me, 
he's like the fucking sloth. He's fucked. Well, let's say someone's listening to this right now and they're just, they've just started out their law firm. You know, they've got a small firm and they're not at the point where they're, you know, they're anywhere near being a market leader. But when they're hearing this, how do they know the difference between whether they're that person or not, just because they haven't made that progress yet or that traction yet to the point where, I mean, you have to believe there is free will, right? So that's, it's recognizing that, but how do they identify that early on? Look, people know. People, what do they say? Know thyself. We know who we are. Sometimes we don't want to admit who we are, but we know who we are. We know if we get up early. We know what time we get up. We know what time we come home from work. At the end of the day, numbers don't lie. We know if we work on Friday. We know what we do on Saturday. We know. Now, a lot of times we don't want to admit we're lazy. We want to act like we're working. But we all know if you are able to self examine yourself and be honest with yourself. You know what you are. I know what I am. And we also know what our weaknesses are. And when you sometimes find those weaknesses, then you got to go find partners that can supplement your weaknesses. Listen, there's one common denominator with successful people by and large, every one of them worked hard, worked very hard very hard and long, long hours. And ask yourself, how many hours a week do I work? How many days a week do I work? It's like when I examine, when you examine your soul and your heart, if you ever want to examine your heart and your soul, look at your checkbook and look at your calendar. And if you're lazy, I can't help you. I can't help you. You're, you're the sloth and you might need to go work for the Florida Highway Patrol legal or something like that. I have been desperate. I have been poor. I have been without, you know, I don't know where I'm going to turn. There, there's no worse feeling in the world to have a financial crisis and not know how you're going to solve it. The only way I ever knew to solve it was to work my way out of it. But even then, you still, I still have the dream that I'm in law school or school and I haven't gone to class and, you know, I'm running around on the day of final exam and, you know, I'm going to fail out. I still have that dream. And when you've been hungry and when you've been desperate, that is a permanent feeling that never leaves your brain, never leaves your psyche. You can't get it out because it was so devastating and traumatic. When I look back on all the things I went through as a kid and how hard it was to get through school and law school and make money, oh, I, I look at it and go, how did it happen? I didn't know how I did it. And there were so many close calls where am I going to be able to continue? Well, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, many of the most successful people that I've speak with, they have this level of paranoia. I mean, I even feel it myself every day. I feel maybe the gig is almost up. It's almost like it, it stays with you. And you mentioned in the book, you're waking up in cold sweats. Are you still waking up in cold sweats? Does this still happen? Well, I don't wake up in the cold sweats like I used to because, you know, I'm a saver of money. And I've always like when I had that first big case I told you about, I bought my house cash and I've never I've always bought my houses cash. So because I'm so worried about failure and because we have, as a kid, we lost our homes. 
You know, I mean, I've lost my home. I've had power cut off. I've picked up the telephone and the bill's not been paid. I've had the ACE air conditioner go down for three years in Florida. So I've got enough money that I'm going to be okay no matter what. But I still worry because I'm competitive. I mean, I'm in the attraction business. I have a lot of attractions across America. You know, when I get off this deal with you, I got to deal with what do I do there? The Disney World has closed for the month. What do I do? And so, but I'm not as worried as much about total devastation as I was when I had no money and four children and a wife. And you go down and you look in those bedrooms and those little people are counting on you to make sure their life stays perfect. That really makes you, that really makes you paranoid. When you, how many kids do you have, Mike? One, 14 months old. 14 months. So go look in that crib. You know, is it a boy or a girl? The girl. So that little girl, even worse. When a little girl's looking up at you, she's like, I don't need to worry about anything. I got him. And then you carry that, and then you walk out of the room and carry that burden. And hopefully it inspires you to work harder. There's a common mindset amongst many of the market leaders we featured on the podcast, the idea that only the paranoid survive. Joe Freed, one of America's most well-known trucking attorneys, shared some insightful reflections on this idea as well. I think that that fear makes us go down different paths. And for some people, fear drives them to drugs and alcohol and reclusiveness and, and failure. And others, it drives them to be a different kind of addict, one that goes to work every day and on weekends and spends 15 hours a day. And, and if you look at those things, they're, it's an addiction also. But I think, that, I think that mankind's constant struggle is, is a struggle to keep fear and self-doubt and sort of worthiness at bay. And those are all versions of, the, of what I'm talking about. So, I mean, to me now, when I go, when I go into a case, there's a huge expectation that some magic's going to happen. Man, it's a scary place to live, man. I mean, what if the magic doesn't happen? And what will I be then if it doesn't happen? Because people are fickle and uh, there's people who would love to pop anybody else's balloon if, if you've had any measure of success. So fear continues. I mean, I'm not saying I'm walking around cowering in corners uh, because I think courage is not uh, the absence of fear, it's action in the face of fear, right? We call we call the other thing probably something else. But but at the at the end of the day, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, th- I think that that for now, I also have this sort of more global fear. It's a different kind of fear, and that's for the world we live in. You know, I I mean, I have kids, and I look at my kids and other kids, and I see the innocence. I see a society that, in some ways, has devalued life a lot and devalued pain a lot. And I refuse to accept that. So in what I do is that that's, that's a fear sort of of what we become as a, as a world and as a society. And I'm trying to do my small piece on a case by case basis to remind folks one by one case by case that every human being is valuable Every human being's experience is valuable. I'm not better than anyone else. I think that there's a there's a macro and a micro level 
And now that I've had some success, I have more resources to be able to play in that other sandbox. I mean, the reason I can spend so much time now working on safety policy and trucking and going to Washington, D.C. and starting the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys and doing all those kinds of things and being able to have time away from specific cases is because of some of the successes we've had. Otherwise, I couldn't do those things. So I get to play in a, in a sandbox that, ha- that hopefully can make some positive change. Joe Freed's road to becoming an attorney was one characterized as a calling, a calling to make a difference and ultimately to help people. I wanted to know as a young idealist, I wanted to know what the world was doing to try to stop things like this from happening because it seemed like everybody was dying. While I was doing that, I spent some time in courtrooms and sitting in a courtroom to me was like sitting in a hallowed place. It was it was a place that even as I was a police officer starting when I was 19 years old, so I was pretty young. But even even at a very young age, I felt that important things happen here. And I also saw with my own two eyes that justice is not equal at all. Justice is not blind at all. And despite the our you know affirmation that it will be, it's not. And one of the big difference makers is the lawyer. Uh, and so I saw that as the place that, that I should go, uh, the place that I could make a difference. Um, I had a, an older sister who was an, an attorney at the time, and she, um, she helped me make that decision. And I had a judge who pulled me up one day, asked me to come talk to him and, and told me in chambers, kind of like, what are you doing? Do you want to do more? Not that law enforcement isn't a noble thing to do, because it is, but that's the that was the that was the way it all started. What's unique about Joe is how successful he's been in niching down to focus exclusively on trucking accidents. One of the most memorable moments from this season was hearing about the birth of that niche in Joe's firm. I, about three o'clock in the morning, I decided that I was going to be I was going to be a truck accident lawyer, and at the time. You know, I know now lawyers look around and they see ads everywhere. Everybody's a truck lawyer. At the time, people laughed at me. I mean, the next day I went in early in the morning. Literally, I was the first time I was energized in a long time. I went in. I was waiting for my at that time staff of one person to come to come in who left with me for my old firm, so I could tell her what my you know midlife crisis moment was or what I was thinking, and I was taking myself off of all these boards that I was had been put on. I, I was sending messages to people who were on these product boards that I was on for the fuel-fed firework that I had been doing. And I had gotten some notoriety and gotten put on uh, some national boards. And I was writing to them. I went to sleep last night, an auto products lawyer. I woke up this morning, I'm a truck accident lawyer. And the people who were up that early were responding to me saying, what did you drink last night, man? I mean, first of all, you've got this incredible practice where you know you're making a lot of money. And you're just going to stop doing that? You're going to stop just like on a dime? And I, my response was, yeah, I'm already stopped. It's done. That's in the past. And so about 8.15 that morning, uh, the phone rings. And um, you, know, you got to understand this. I had no trucking cases when this decision was made. I pick up the phone. I'm in my new little office, which is little. I'm, I'm renting space from a good friend of mine all on my own at the time. And this lady with a kind of a far off voice starts to talk to me. And she said, is, is this Joe Freed? I said, yes, ma'am. How can I help you? And she said, um, at three o'clock this morning, my husband was killed. 
And I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. What, what happened? And she said, I, I don't know, but I, I don't know what happened, but I know that he got hit by a truck. And I thought, really? I mean, this is some, some weird stuff, man. And this is almost like, like, did I cause this? No, I hope I didn't cause it. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, but that's kind of the thought I had. And I said, well, how did you know to call me? And she said, I, I don't really know how, how I have your name. And she called, she called me. I mean, I don't know if somebody in law enforcement gave, gave her my name. I don't know if, I mean, at the time I, I probably had a website, but I certainly wasn't a trucking website. And of course I said, well, don't talk to anybody else. I'm on my way to come see you. And right about that time, I, one staff person came in and I said, we're now a trucking firm. That's what all we're doing. And I'm on my way to sign up our first client. But from the moment I made the call to do this, I blew up the other bridges. I, you can imagine I continued to get phone calls for product cases that would have been million, multi-million dollar product cases. I turned them down uh, instead, and I didn't have many cases. Instead, what I did is I, I took a lot of steps to become a real expert, subject matter expert in trucking, studying the regulations, studying the training, studying what does it mean to be a CDL driver, all the things that I now go around the country and try to teach other lawyers about and started to develop. It was the early stages of developing what I now believe to be best practices and that I teach about all over the country. It's been an amazing thing, and it really feels like I'm doing the work that I, I'm supposed to be doing. From there, Joe honed that specialty into a market-dominating presence as one of the top trucking attorneys in the nation. That's another commonality between many of the market-leading law firm owners, their relentless dedication to excellence. John Gomez, founder and CEO of Gomez Trial Attorneys in San Diego, California, shared his thoughts on the matter earlier this season as well. The people I really admire have very different styles and approaches, you know, like you had Mark Lanier on, you know, he's a huge hero of mine. Brian Panish out here in California is a friend of mine and a guy I admire a lot. There's tremendous female trial lawyers, so different styles, different, you know, looks, different genders. But I think the, the consistent thing is that they have a commitment to excellence and they work really hard at it. And a lot of people don't see that. They say, oh, they're just naturally talented. And maybe there's a little bit of that, but I think it's all hard work. I think it's just commitment and repetition and hard work is really what defines, you know, the great trial lawyers. And it's not exactly like an athlete, you know, because they're freak athletes that can just go out and be freak athletes. But the, the Hall of Famers are the ones that worked on their craft. And I would say the same thing with trial lawyers. John Gomez is a big believer in the idea that discipline equals freedom. The stories he shared about his journey, including how he continues to practice humility and self-improvement, are key lessons for every entrepreneur. I always have been disciplined, you know, like in terms of like training. I've been a, a martial artist for a long, long time. I was a college athlete. And so I would always stay pretty healthy, but my, I would say alcohol consumption and uh, use of other substances and my lifestyle got out of hand for a while. And that caused me to develop a whole lot more discipline in terms of my self-care and sort of self-centering and healthy lifestyle. So I have developed a lot more discipline than I had back then. But even in like high school and college, I was always the hardest working out, you know, on any team that I played on. So I've had that, but I just got a little off track. 
the funny thing is, over the years, I have learned about people that I barely know that just hate me and think terrible things about me. They have this preconception of who I am. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, I didn't realize you're actually a nice guy. Or, you know, I had this guy reach out to me and he goes, hey, John, you know, I haven't, you know, come to the meeting. I host these meetings in my law firm for a group. I just let them use my courtroom. And he goes, I've never, I didn't come before because I was jealous of you. And I was, and, and there's just this community of people that I think maybe there was a period of my life where I earned it, where people did not like me, some with good reason. You know, I always tried to be nice to everybody, but I was a bit of an ass. But even now, like there are people that dislike me. And so is it a redemption story? Yeah, you know, I think you can't help but feel that a little bit. And I've gotten to the point where I don't really care. You know, if people don't like me. I know the life that I live. I know how I try to help people. But I think it's important for me. I feel like I, I was on the rock so much. I feel like God interceded and chose me and saved me from a lot of harm and or death and or just not being around. And I owe it to him and, and to myself and to everyone to give it back in a positive way. So yeah, I feel like it's a good chapter in my life right now. John Gomez also shared a number of daily habits that keep him at the top of his game. I do this thing called morning routine. Every morning I get up at about usually 4.20, uh, 4.15, 4.20, get up and I meditate. So I do transcendental meditation. I'm trained in that. So I, I do that. Then I pray. I read the Bible for a little bit. And that kind of starts my day, you know, off right. I do something physical pretty much every day. And so I really am a, a big fan of, I like jujitsu. I train in jujitsu. I do judo, which is very similar. And I do uh, Bikram hot yoga, which is uh, to me like very good for an older guy like me trying to do the jujitsu and judo. And very like, you know, if I do that during trial, I'll go in and I'll be doing the yoga. And then all of a sudden, just this thought will come to me that clarifies everything. And so otherwise, you know, I try to spend super quality time with my kids. You know, I take them to their soccer practices or whatever practices, try to watch all their games. I've coached them all. I just try to give quality time to the people around me. And I try to get good sleep, eat well, not ever go to a club or stay out late at a bar ever. So that's basically where I'm at right now. Now, let's talk about jujitsu, because it's clear that you're very passionate about that. And so I, I'm not a practitioner myself yet, but from everything I've heard about jujitsu is that if if you ever come in with ego, that'll get, you know, that'll get out of you pretty quick. Uh, do you see any parallels between jujitsu and, and, uh, and even being a trial attorney? Yeah, lots. You know, the thing I like about it is that it just crushes me. Like where I train, everybody's better than me, I feel like. And everybody's younger than me. And so I like to do things that that when I'm driving there or on the way, I'm a little scared. You know, like that adrenaline kind of gets in you and you're like a little scared and you're like, oh, shoot, what's going to happen? Am I going to get my ass kicked today? Or am I going to survive? Or how is this going to go? And that's the way I feel every time that I'm on the way to do that. And I think that's a, a great thing for anyone that has had any kind of success 
in any other aspect of their life. Cause on the mat, they don't know. I mean, maybe a couple of them know I'm a lawyer, but they could give a shit about any verdict or what kind of house I live in or anything like that. And so I think it removes a lot of ego in life. And then once you get into court, you know, it provides you a confidence to be sure, but I think it removes an ego because you are completely worthless you're trying your best and you're doing your best. And I don't want to overplay it, but it's certainly an ego smashing activity for me. A common thread amongst many of the most successful law firm owners is their attitude towards adversity. John Gomez shared the mindset that not only sets them apart, but also gives them the strength to keep pushing forward. You know, I've faced difficult circumstances in my life. I've been like without food, you know, I've been dealing with, you know, bad people in my life. So like, Having difficulties managing a law firm in the larger sense, you know, to me, were always temporary. I always thought I could get through that. And I've always had, you know, confidence in my own ability to make things right. And I just said, look, I'm going to grind and grind. I'm going to make decisive action and then I'm going to grind. And I know we're good and we're going to come out fine. And so it was a combination of perseverance based on past hardship with a confidence in the future. Alexander Shannara, through his relentless marketing and community involvement, has become one of the most recognizable faces in the state of Alabama, a walking celebrity. He shared on the podcast what that experience has been like. It's flattering, really. You know, I didn't really intend for any of that to happen. But, um, yeah, they do dress up as me as Halloween. Uh, if I can't go to the mall anywhere, you know, without hearing something like a call me Alabama or I just went to a football game, you know, this past fall and I, from the, where I parked to the stadium was only about a half a mile walk. I had to sound my posse that was with me was counting. I, I had to stop for like 43 photographs and I pretty much missed the kickoff. But I, I think it's great because, I mean, it's my business. It's my brand. I'm actually the brand which, you know, didn't intend that either. But 15 years ago when I started this, I really honestly didn't think I was building a brand. This is like the overnight success 15 years in the making, right? Yes, sir. It's actually our 18th year, but uh, obviously the first uh, two or three years, it was very lean and we still have it. And it's a dear to my heart. We call it the Shannara swag, you know, where you're, so I still do that every day. And uh, we have probably a hundred swag items at all times, but uh, that's how I started, you know, where you just from the business cards to shaking the hands to the refrigerator magnets to and um, to the hot sauce to the hot sauce to just anything to try to um, get someone to remember you. When I move, I move pretty fast, but I have to see something that kind of just strikes me to move. And I was just reading the paper. You know, I like uh, the financial markets also and stuff that interests me. And I had saw that. San Francisco had outlawed phone books. I think it was a Wall Street Journal or USA Today, and it just resonated with me. And I love my state, but you know we move a little slower than people in San Francisco and out west. And the fact that the city of San Francisco had made it uh, against the law, I guess, to put the paperbacks, I knew we were headed where print was, unfortunately, no offense to anyone in the print business, you know, it's awesome. But in regards to attorneys and attorney advertising, that that was not where we were headed. And so I called, actually, it was a friend of mine and actually a relative, a distant relative who I had all my ads with. And I called him up that morning. And I said, hey, I'm canceling all my phone book ads at the end of the year. 
and I went to um, Lamar Advertising, and I said, hey, your inventory space is about 40% off because all the car dealers had pulled and everybody had pulled, and they really were struggling. I said, what are you doing with all your empty billboards? And they said, hey, we use them for public service, uh, you know, or PSAs or something. And I said, yeah, they're empty. You're not getting any money. And, uh, of course, got the rate cards on them and then made this outlandish offer at the time. It was a very low amount. And um, uh, they said, no, we could never do that. And I said, well, you know, this amount is better than no amount. And believe it or not, a month later, they came back to me. And uh, that's kind of how it started. And I bought 100 billboards at that time. And, and I'm not looking for credit. Maybe I shouldn't even say this. I think I was the person who actually started the whole phenomena of lawyers getting massive amounts of billboards. And so I feel like they've all emulated me. Uh, I can name 10 lawyers in 10 cities who went and did the same thing that I did. The thing about the space we're in, it's the personal injury space. or the, You don't know when someone is going to need you. So it's a one-time deal, and most people are only injured the unfortunate, now I've had some clients who've been injured four or five times, and I don't know if there are magnets for accidents, but you only get one shot at them. So any successful law firm, it's a marathon, and you have to think of it as long-term. And that was really easy for me when I got in the billboard space. You know, I said, okay, I'm a, I love practicing law. I'm 40 years old. I'm never leaving Alabama. Um, I was born there, I'm raised there, I'm going to die there. I'm not going to ever do anything else and just making that calculated decision. And so so the billboards will probably be with me. Now, I think the picture needs to change when I'm 70, but <laughs> but it's been, it's been a good, fun run. You know, when I got to law school, I wanted my grades to be as, as good as anybody else's grades. And then when I got in the personal injury space, and maybe this is funny, but I, I, I can't imagine someone else being uh, the most recognizable person or the number one law firm in Alabama. You know, those are not on my watch. And I joke around that if I ever drive in Alabama and somebody has a larger law firm or is more popular than I am or more branded, or I'm just going to jump off a bridge. Because, you know, that's funny, but there's no meaning for me anymore. Because it's just who I am and it's just what I do. And the climb is fun, but staying on top is actually harder than actually the climb itself. So I want to talk about that. I mean, it's always interesting. I, I ask myself this question probably about a dozen times every single day. What would it take? I mean, if, if you just mentioned somebody, let's say, with a larger law firm or somebody to take down the Shannara firm, like, what would it take to essentially either put a dent in your business or to put you out of business? Because I'm sure this, this probably keeps you up at yeah. night. I find some of the most successful people are also some of the most paranoid. I think it's called, you know, paranoia is a good word or... Fear is a good thing in certain circumstances. And I think so it's the fear of regressing that keeps you motivated. But I truly believe this with all my heart. When you reach a certain level, no one can take you out but yourself. And I, when I go to bed at night, I pray for sound mind and sound body. Because if my mind is sound and my body is sound, or no catastrophic event, you know, with uh, maybe a family member or something, um, I don't think anybody can take us out. Now, we can take ourselves out. Um, you've seen that with an uh, example like Joe Paterno or, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really doesn't take very much, you know, being accused of some crazy crime or something. Uh, uh, and the public will turn on you pretty quickly. Yeah. So oh. you, so you got to be very, very careful. Beyond the iconic billboard marketing that has become Alex's claim to fame, he shared what drives him and what he believes separates the most successful from the least successful firm owners. 
first of all, you have to have the want to. And so I just finished doing my uh, 65 attorney um, attorney evaluations just recently. It took almost like two months to do them. But um, the one thing I've learned, unless they want to be a good lawyer, unless they want to make more money, unless they want to do anything, or any human wants to do anything, unless you have the want to do it, it really doesn't matter. And now if you have the want, then there are ways to accomplish those things and to get to the next level. But, you know, to answer your question directly, I just think, you know, there's many factors, but if you have the want to, and if you're disciplined, and if you'll take the time, and if you'll learn the space, and you'll take calculated risk, and you'll invest, and you'll hire the right people, and you'll be patient, and um, in your personal life, you know, if you're staying healthy. I've seen a lot of my lawyers who married the wrong spouse, or maybe he was the wrong spouse. Things like that can affect them. You know, I've always said this to you, um, there's a very thin line uh, between love and hate, and I think there's even a thinner line between success and failure. For me personally, I'm always trying to become better and learn different techniques. And But in the past, I have always been a control freak myself, and they tell me that um, I believe in, say, extreme ownership, um, because I know how important every, you know, just how we answer the phone or customer service or... Um, the most important thing, you know, in our business, you know, you get a, a lead and it would drive me crazy if, a, if we didn't call them back within five minutes. You know, now we don't let them off the phone. But in the past, they'd call in, you know, you take a message, you know. I was always just, I guess, is it OCD? I don't even know the terms. I mean, I look, there have been times where I have driven to people's homes at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Now, you get a little bit older, and, you know, you talked about compromising your health and so forth and so on, but, you know, it's the little things that make the huge difference. It's it's just the extra thing, and, you know, some people don't want to live like that, and so I think, and some people say, I have no life, but this is my life, and I love my life, and I enjoy what I do, and um, I don't want to fish. While they're fishing, uh, you know, the joke is I'm fishing for marlins, which are what we call pretty catastrophic cases. Uh, even last night at dinner, they were like, well, Alex, do you play golf? I was like, no. And they are like, well, what do you do? I said, I chase marlins. <laughs> you know, it's a joke, but, you know, I, I, I run my business. They're like, well, do you vacation? No. What do you mean you don't vacation? I was like, well, I'm going on spring break with my family to New York for a week. You know, that's great. And, you know, in the summertime. But, look, my life is a vacation. I'm in Atlanta today with you. That's a vacation. I ate at a five-star restaurant yesterday. We're at the Waldorf Astoria. It's incredible. So, you know, going to Vegas to speak, you go into Miami. I mean, while you're working, there are great restaurants everywhere. You can go see a show at night when you go to New York. I mean, so that is vacation. In the law business, there's two ways to handle it. You can either let your practice run you or you can run your practice. And I'm always on the offensive. While Alexander Shannara clearly knows a thing or two about successful law firm marketing and branding, Jay Kelly, managing partner of Elk and Elk, also had some thoughts on the subject. Sometimes you wonder what your brand is, and then something you don't even intend slaps you in the face. And this year, I've started to be in some of the live ads with art. And the theory being that we want to transition this very gradually. You would have thought that a great unsolved crime had occurred 
during the first Cincinnati Reds game. People blew up our social media and our phone lines wondering what happened to Dave. And rumors to the point where we actually had to put out on social media, no, this is our transition. Dave is fine, kind of a proof of life photo of Dave. So people knew that, you know, we had not like rested Dave off the camera against his will. And it became kind of a funny thing within here. But what an incredible tribute to them too. Like you wonder, are people paying attention? Well, I can tell you, first night, first game that that thing ran, we had hundreds of inquiries, sincere inquiries. Like, is he okay? Oh no, did something happen? And you know, as I said to Art Dave, I go, if you wonder how much you mean to your community, I go, people took time to make sure that they that Dave was okay. And I assure you, Dave is fine. Dave has no intention of not handling cases going forward. We're just, as you and I talked the first time we met several years back, this is kind of the very slow, gradual transition. You know, we do outside testing for what is our brand lift within every season. And we demand that there be an outside company. A lot of times people use Dr. Wakefield and Baylor is one of the common ones. And what we find is his theory of, can you be recalled across multiple platforms to create a brand association? So is there an association and is it positive? What we have found is because we're the local person, you know, not Budweiser or some of those other companies, our brand recall goes off the chart. It is a local team and we are a local business. And obviously the NFL, Major League Baseball are not easy places to market. It's not a, a low spend, but we have seen a measurable lift that is honestly absurdly high for us. And we think that's because we are one of the very few local people marketing on that platform. I know you mentioned also the aspect of kind of a brand recall versus credibility. How do you essentially differentiate the two and what, what have been some of the lessons that you've learned? So recall without credibility serves no purpose. You know, someone knowing our name, but not having a level of trust or interest in our brand serves no purpose. They're not going to call. You know, at the core of this is a legal relationship. It's, you know, an attorney-client privilege. And that requires trust. So for people to contact our firm, they're putting probably one of their biggest problems in their life in our hands, or at least considering us for that. So I think recall is great. You have to have it. But what are they recalling? Are they recalling a phone number? No one needs a phone number anymore. I mean, just Siri dials it for you. What are they recalling? An address or your name? They need to actually have a positive association with your brand when they recall it, or it is pointless as it pertains to being a legal professional service. I enjoyed hearing Jay speak about the nuances of brand recall versus brand credibility, particularly the insights he had when it came to measuring your return on investment or ROI from your marketing. 
you see it with some of those lead generation companies or people that pay-per-click certain terms and that's unsustainable. You know what I mean? You are measuring an ROI that is so transactional and finite that it can't survive. If you can build a brand that will lift all of those transactional approaches that you make. So instead of starting at the goal line, you get to start at the 10 yard line or the 50 yard line. You know what I mean? The better your brand, the shorter you have to go to get a positive ROI. So I get it. It's expensive. Look, a sports partnership is almost worthless the first year. You cannot build brand association in a year. You have to sustain it. It does require you to look over the horizon and say, where do I want to be in three or five years? You know, now you can't stay down a fool's course and not look at data and be stubborn about the mistakes you make because you're going to make them. We've made mistakes countless times. But the one thing that you own is your brand. And, you know, my dad, you know, I'm James Michael Kelly III. And, you know, I tell the story often that it was the most embarrassing thing in elementary school that teachers, when they would take attendance the first day, would add an accent to the third and make fun of it. Classmates would laugh. But what I learned from my dad is your name is your brand. And the pride in your name, and obviously I feel more because it was my dad's, my grandfather's, now my son's, you can't put something above the value of your name. And that's the firm brand. So just like the NFL will say, it's all about the shield, or a person will say, my reputation's my everything, your brand is your reputation. And it will pay you back exponentially the highest ROI you can ever imagine. And without it, you're just going to waste a lot of money. One of the most fascinating episodes we released this year featured Mark O'Mara the nationally recognized criminal defense attorney who rose to prominence defending George Zimmerman in the controversial case back in 2013. As a seasoned trial attorney, Mark shared something that he believes makes him uniquely cut out to take on the most challenging cases. If you told me that I could make my hourly rate or make my salary staring at a wall, a stressless situation, it would drive me crazy. I mean, there are people who like non-stress. I wake up, I grow. I excel in times of high stress. And though I don't perceive it to be stressful walking into a courtroom, other people perceive it to be very stressful. To me, I walk into a courtroom, that's my nirvana. It's almost like, you know, I, I probably can't walk into an operating room. I can't draw a straight line, so I can't be an artist. But you open up the door to a courtroom, and that's where all of my cylinders start hitting properly and every neuron is focused on what's happening in that courtroom. Mark was transparent about his experience working on the Zimmerman case, the ups, downs, and everything in between. There were opportunities given to me on a daily basis to, to mess up. You know, part of it is, and there's so much to get into, but, you know, when you have that throng of reporters, you know, 
half of them are legitimate journalists. But don't forget, this is the day of cell phones, and everybody can stick a cell phone in your face and say something really obnoxious to you, hoping to get a response. So I had to maintain that type of a chill or a calm attitude and realize that if I did say something that would either get me in trouble with a judge, very easy, get me in trouble with the black community, which I had to be extraordinarily sensitized to, because don't forget, I'm a criminal defense attorney. That's what I do for a living, meaning I represent a lot of young black males in the criminal justice system. And I say that because I'm very sensitized to those issues and to the biases that exist in the criminal justice system. So I had to be very aware of what the um, Martin family was going through, and not just the Martin family as those individuals, but the black community, the African-American community, focused on the Zimmerman case as being the poster child case for that type of bias in the criminal justice system. The, the facts didn't really match, but the passion was there in that community, and we had to be very aware and careful of that right as I got involved with the with his arrest and my entry into the case, it went ballistic. And I mean that in the true nature of the term. And it never slowed down. So I couldn't go anywhere without being sort of not attacked, but approached, um, you know, how, what about this? What about that? Thank you. How dare you go to hell? Whatever it might be. And I don't mind that for me because, again, I do this for a living. I was really worried about my family, about Jen, and also my staff because, you know, that little office we had didn't have, you know, metal doors in front of it. You want to throw something through a window or something like that, it's right there. And so there was a lot of fear about what to do because we couldn't control it. Again, even with those 2,500 legitimate threats, you don't know if it's somebody who is, you know, in Kansas in a basement with a, in a bathroom borrowing a laptop going, die you, or if it's literally somebody who's got a nine millimeter down the street. That can sort of just, you know, make it more difficult to go to sleep at night. But no, it, it was very, it was very bizarre, uh, very difficult, very worried about what those people around me might have negative effect on them. Were there times just during the, the during this case where you're just like, you know what, I don't really need this. Let me tap out of this, right? Like, were there times you consider just getting out of there? No, there's just no. I, I got to tell you, I'm not saying this like you know, patting myself on the shoulder. No, this was a case that I loved when I got involved in it, and as it got, let's call it crazier, as it got much more almost bizarre. Quite honestly, it fed into exactly what I'm good at. You know, the media craziness, for example. And again, I learned along the way for those two years, and this sounds really egoist, and I do not mean it this way. That was a very difficult case to navigate from a media perspective. And somehow, with the grace of God and the genes of my family, somehow I did it. But I have seen other people since, other people before, just destroy and screw up cases. And thank the good Lord, we didn't do it on this one um, because we were able to sort of keep that balance. But yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a crazy, crazy time, but I never would have changed a day of it. And I mean, you know, I didn't see Jen um, for a week at a time. We'd see each other on the weekends normally for a day, but I would leave at seven. I'd get home after 11 p.m. Because I had, a, don't forget, I was not only doing a full-time 40 hours, whatever it was on 
Zimmerman, I had to keep my practice alive because my practice is what was paying to keep my staff there and all that. So, no, this was never ending. I think I took, I think it was four days overall off during those 20, 22 months or whatever. During my conversation with Mark, I wondered what kept him going through the intense experience of representing such a polarizing figure in a heavily scrutinized case for years. And at the end of it, how did he feel? Worn down, traumatized by the experience, or relieved that it was over? I was so energized. And, and I would tell you a story, some insight. Um, Don West, who was my co-counsel, who's a great lawyer, and I, if I got in trouble, I would call Don. But the way the case sat on both of us was so different. Um, Don was very frustrated with the media a little bit, but with the judge and with the prosecutors, and the, they were really underhanded and dirty in the way they were handling us. So he was very frustrated with him. We were on, I think it was with Matt Lauer, I think it was, yeah, afterwards. And they said, they asked the question you just asked. They said, well, you know, what do you think about this and the aftermath and, you know, now that you're through it? And Don answered first. And Don said, well, you know, I can now sort of understand what people talk about when they talk about PTSD. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's talking. And as he's talking, I'm sort of looking over going, uh, okay. And Matt turned to me and, and I said, you know, with all due respect to Don, I went, these were the best two years of my life. I wouldn't change an hour of it. It was an absolute two-year adrenaline rush. That was me at my best. Those two years, eight, 20 months, every day, every hour of every day, I was at my best, and it was like being on an adrenaline buzz, being on, you know, 105 octane instead of high test. It was just perfect. We had up to eight or nine law student paralegals or, or law students working with us. The staff was energized. I, if I could bottle those two years, I wouldn't change literally an hour of it. If you're going to represent somebody, if you're going to say that you're a criminal defense lawyer, how dare you not take on the tough cases? What, what in God's name are you doing here if what you're saying is, well, I'll do the possession of cocaine cases because he had it in his pocket. I'll do the DUI or I'll do this. But, you know, those other ones, let's, uh, I don't want to touch that. Well, then, I don't know, go sell cars. You know, I sort of joke. People say, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, I train prosecutors. I train cops. Oh, are you a cop yourself? No, no, no. Criminal defense lawyer. Whoa, what do you mean? I said, because look, this is the way the system works. We have this constitution. We are all bound by it. It's a very active, very dynamic document. Changes every day. Not supposed to change much, but cases interpret it. So what I do is I make sure that if you're going to get a conviction of my client, you just go through me. And I'm going to use all of my talents, all of my intellect, all of my speaking abilities to make sure that you will only get your conviction if you do everything right. I am basically quality control for the criminal justice system. If you want to get your conviction, I will teach you how to do it. Or more importantly, I will teach you how not to do it. And let me tell you something. I'll get up on my high horse for a minute. The reason why, Michael, you and everybody else that you know can walk around the streets and sort of do what you want. You can even speed a little bit. You can jaywalk when you want, or you can get away with stuff. You can live your life without worrying about what cops may impact you is because people like me are out there saying, no, you cannot stop Michael's car 
for no good reason. I don't care if Michael has 40 pounds of cocaine in his trunk. If you break into that trunk without a warrant or without good reasons, he may be morally guilty of it. He damn well is not legally guilty of it. So everyone who wanders through and really enjoys the freedoms that they have and sit back and say, I can say this, I can walk out and say to you, Michael, on the street, I think you're a jerk, right? Well, that's freedom of speech. That's the First Amendment. We protect that, too. The Fourth Amendment, we protect you being safe. The Fifth Amendment, they cannot bring you into a room and say, tell us what you know, Michael, and start beating you with a rubber hose, which, by the way, they used to do because of the Fifth Amendment, because of lawyers like me, the Sixth Amendment. The reason why you have a lawyer like me is because the Sixth Amendment says you have the right to counsel. That didn't used to be. You know, it was only because of good lawyers went off there and said, wait a minute, that Constitution, the only way that has real effect is if you do it now. So the reason why criminal defense lawyers should exist and the reason why you should take on whatever case you're given and do it with all you got is because we're there protecting the Constitution. We are truly, as it says in the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers magazine, we are liberty's last champion. And if you don't want to do that, that's okay. Go do PI work or wills and trust or go, you know, start another dot com. Don't be a criminal defense lawyer. But if you're going to do this, you better damn well do it well. A commitment to excellence is key for market leaders. Another larger than life attorney we were fortunate enough to have on the show this year was Mike Papantonio of Levin Papantonio, someone who's truly changed the game in the mass torts arena. I've never been a class action lawyer. I've always been a trial lawyer. I'll never forget the moment. We were in Atlanta and the breast implant litigation had just, had just taken off, right? And so because I had done asbestos litigation before then, I had co-counsel all over the country that were sending me their breast implant cases. And so I remember these old guys up on a stage. I won't name the names, but most people who remember this era knew who they were. So I got these old guys on the stage. There's 400 people. We're in Atlanta at some big hotel. And they're telling me what they're going to do with my cases because they're class action lawyers. They were mass tort lawyers who were terrible mass tort lawyers who never really were there for the consumer. They were there for themselves. They were there to make big fees and then move on. And I remember the arrogance and the audacity of this character standing up on the stage telling me what I was going to do with my cases and how he was going to handle it. I remember grabbing the mic. I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid. But I remember grabbing the mic and saying, Mr. I don't even know who you are, but it's not going to be anything that you're going to be involved with my cases. There's not going to be a time where you make a decision for me as a trial lawyer what I'm going to do with my cases. I'm telling you, it was that year and that moment where I decided that I wanted to build out a new reality in the area of trial law. I wanted mass tort lawyers not to be class action lawyers. I wanted mass tort lawyers that wanted to be able to try their own cases and, and do what a trial lawyer should do and get top dollar for their clients and make it about the client, not about them. We came out of that room and we said, we have to make a shift here. And those days are gone. And they were gone all the way right after the breast implant litigation. Nothing was ever the same. And so out of that came the building of uh, Mass Torts Made Perfect and the whole notion of putting together talented trial lawyers, talented marketers, 
talented business minds, talented visionaries, all in one room and say, how do we continue this notion of taking care of a consumer in a way that's never been done before to where people don't look at us and say, yeah, Mike, you made a big fee, but how much did your, how did you do for your client? Those days are totally gone. And every now and then we have to push back. Every now and then they try to reemerge and we have to push back. Actually, we're at one of those junctions right now where I feel like I'm having to push back more than I ever have. But that's okay. It's, it's, an, ongoing, it's an ongoing element of, of who we are and what we do. So that was a really decisive shift in the practice of law. And any of those 400 people that were in that room will remember the screaming match between me and the folks up on that stage. And we walked out of there and said, we're going to do things differently. Challenging the status quo is the name of the game for Mike Papantonio, and he's done it in more ways than one. From mass tort litigation, to building a brand, to leaving a meaningful legacy, Pap is full of tried and true wisdom. People get too comfortable. You know, they're, they're doing the same thing the same way. They, you know, I'm handling these comp cases. I'm making a pretty good living. I'm handling this auto case. I'm but what does it really do for your need to brand and your need to expand? How are you different than anyone else? Unless you say, well, let me take at least a chance on one of these. Let me do a project um, on Zantac. Let me do a project on, uh, on uh, human trafficking. You see, those are the lawyers, when you look at their history, they've had a consistent history of not being fearful of rejection. They've done different things. They've tried to do it a different way. And I keep coming back to the early days of, you know, when John and I were young lawyers. This is what we would talk about all the time, man. What are we doing that's different from everybody else? And so John goes on and he builds this incredible organization throughout uh, America. Uh, you mentioned Shannara was on this program. Same kind of thinker, you see. Same kind of thinker. So... I think that that's had a big impact on me is saying, I can't be afraid of rejection. I can't be afraid of people saying, gee, Pap, you know, what are you trying to do here? <laughs> this, this is really overreaching. I'm just not fearful of that. The notion of um, being out there with new ideas is a brand. The radio message that we did for years, that was part of a brand. The idea of taking on things that are outside the norm, that's part of a brand. But all of these things converge, and there's no one thing. You don't brand yourself simply with TV advertisement. It's important. Without TV advertisement, Michael, how do people know that they've, you know, that there's a product out there that's going to shut down their liver or cause them to have a stroke? How do they know that? Okay, so that's one part of it. But if you're dealing with a lawyer and they're coming to you and they say, Michael, I want you to help brand me. What you have to say is, well, we can't do that with just advertising. The brand has to be a comprehensive picture of what it is that you really stand for. What is that mission statement? And I, so in describing our mission statement, it is to, to work outside of the norms, to try to do things. Whether it's right now we're launching human trafficking, I'm telling you up, up front, by the time the project is years down the road, it'll be one of the biggest projects in the country it's part of our brand is to always be on the cutting edge. And sometimes the cutting edge is a difficult place to hold on to. It's difficult because you're always trying to, you're trying to figure out issues that there's no template for it. 
I mean, how, how did we build out opioids? How did we build out tobacco? It started right here in this law firm, you understand, right here in this law firm. How did we build out tobacco without having any template to do it? Well, it's kind of like walking through a dark room and reaching out and trying to touch a wall. It's not comfortable. You, we wake up at night and you, know, you say, well, what's my next move? It's not comfortable, but it keeps you sharp as an attorney. It keeps you sharp as a person. It makes you better, it makes you better all the way around. You're, not, you're building a legacy and the legacy is more than what's been handed down to you. Your legacy is I saved a river. You know, I, I changed the way this corporation is throwing toxins into a river. I pulled 38, 38 pharmaceuticals off the market because they were, they were hurting people. I got black box warnings on 20 pharmaceuticals. I closed down Wall Street when they were stealing money from mom and pop. I, I did something about that. And then to me, I always think about it. I've got a daughter that's gonna be trying cases with me. And when she says, well, dad, what did you do? I love talking about that. I like saying, well, this is the legacy that I hope that we leave. This is the brand I hope we leave, coming back to that word brand. Your brand is your legacy. Glenn Lerner of Lerner and Rowe Injury Attorneys is someone who embodies a growth mindset. He's built his firm into a national powerhouse with offices all over the country. Our conversation yielded many takeaways for any law firm owner looking to push barriers and break through plateaus. Once we became the largest firm in Vegas in terms of volume and everything, by took us about two years from 98 to 2000 to really be doing a volume that no one's ever done in Vegas and really has never even been close for a long time. Unfortunately, I have, I think it's called faulty wiring, this need to always push it, never be satisfied. You know, I was, gosh, you know, I was doing better than I could have ever imagined in my whole life by the mid 2000s, 2004, 2005. You know, I could pinch myself. I could never imagine, you know, the type of life I'd be blessed with, but I had to prove to myself I could do it in another market. And so, you know, I, Kevin Rowe had been working uh, with me since 1998, and I told him, hey, Kev, go get licensed in Arizona, and I'll give you a piece of the practice. And he did, and we opened up. I needed to prove I wasn't a one-hit wonder, I think. That was a big thing for me. I needed to prove that to myself. And we went down, and within about three, four years, it took a lot of money. But, um, you know, we took over the Phoenix market. And once we did that, and once we were cash flowing positively, I said, man, now I need to prove I can do it one of the biggest markets in the country. And so we went to Chicago and same thing. And then blah, blah, blah. You know, it just is what it is. I, I call it faulty wiring. I wish I could have been like other people and just been satisfied with born market or, you know, whatever. There's a there's certainly a tortured existence, never being satisfied. I know another guy like that is John. You know, it just is. Some people are wired that way. My, my mantra involves two people on this planet, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. And every time I speak, I talk about the two of them because I think they could be two of the greatest corporate CEOs of all time. All they talk about is having a clearly defined process, getting people to buy into that vision, and then ultimately do your job. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they put people in positions where they can't succeed. Give everybody the best opportunity to succeed and then just do your job. There has to be accountability. If people do their job, they're gonna screw up sometimes. Let them screw up. They're gonna learn from it, use it as learning experiences, move on. The only certain things that are unforgivable. Anybody can do our jobs. I mean, you know, lawyers try to act like, oh my God, I'm a genius. Look what I've done. Look what I've created. I could try to monkey to do what I do or what anybody else in my business does. It's not rocket science. 
I want people that usually that haven't worked for other people. We love, we love hiring from our people, you know, so you start with a girl that's been a receptionist or a guy that's been a receptionist and they move up the ladder because they bought into the culture. For us, culture is everything. And you mentioned that earlier when we talked about culture. How has the firm culture evolved over the years? Much better leadership from the top down, you know. Um, so the day-to-day is managed by my partner, Kevin Rowe. Kevin's much better at the detail stuff than I am. I'm a vision guy. I see the, you know, I, I like see the, I see the whole chess game really well. But I can't be troubled with moving my pawn and this and that. I get you know, a butterfly goes by and I go start chasing the butterfly. That's just how I, I'm, that's how I'm wired. So I say, okay, Kevin, you sit in the corner office. This is your job. You do this. And he's great at it. He is so good. I mean, I'm, I could not be prouder to call anybody a partner than Kevin. What, how he's learned uh, to manage people. Originally when he was managing people about 20 years ago, he was a little bit of a dictator, but he's grown so incredibly. I mean, I'm just, if you see him put on office meetings, you know, sometimes we'll have, you know, a couple hundred people on a Zoom meeting or this or that and get people coming in and the accolades and how he runs it. I am just amazed. I can't do that. That's just not me. I don't have that attention to detail, but I'm good at seeing the whole, the whole playing field, you know, it just, and so I think, why would I try to do something that I'm not good at? And I'm better at doing that than he is, you know? seeing the whole playing field and the vision. So he trusts me to grow the firm and with the vision and the relationships around the country, I'm the relationship guy. And he stays focused on just the day to day. It's just a great partnership in that respect. Glenn Lerner is all about winning and believes what sets apart the most successful firms is their firm culture. Everybody always thinks I have a big personality, I have a big ego, but I actually have zero ego. I just want to win. I have zero interest in looking good or this or that. I like winning. I like, I'm the number one win-win guy of all time. I won't do something if somebody else doesn't win as well. If anybody's going to get the short end of the stick, I'd rather have the short end of the stick because life's too short to have people resenting that they did business with you or not being happy about the relationship. And we really strive for that with our clients. I mean, not everybody's going to be satisfied. I mean, in this business, especially when you're an advertising attorney, you get a lot of people that have unreasonable expectations. It, It is what it is, but you do the best you can to curb those expectations and just make everybody feel like they've been heard. You know, there's a restaurateur, Danny Myers in New York. He's one of the most famous restaurateurs in America. He's got about 3000 employees. And I used to operate under the assumption that the customer is always right. And that was such a mistake to operate that way. Danny Myers wrote one time, he said, everybody always operates under the assumption the customer is always right. But if the customer is always right, What you're doing is pitting the customer against your employee and you're going to make your employee wrong automatically. And I was thinking, man, if I'm always saying the customer's right and taking this side that I'm, I'm throwing my employees out there to the walls, I'm throwing them under the bus. What he said, the customer isn't always right. Nobody's always right. That's a fallacy. But what's true is the customer always wants to be heard. And that's an important thing to recognize. I think it changed the the dynamic in our office. Um, We're culture guys. So I think that was a really important thing for us, whether it's 10 people or, you know, like 500, like we are now, it's the same thing. I think you have to give people a vision though. You got to have those processes in place. I think really just treating your people the right way. People don't work for us. They work with us. We call everybody teammates and it's even everybody knows I'm the boss. Everybody knows I'm the head honcho. I don't try to lord that over anybody. 
I'm only as good as the weakest link in that chain, obviously, because we have you know, a bunch of offices and I live all over the place. But when I'm in any of the offices, I go by and I say hi to every single person. And I try to know every single person. It gets a little harder to know people over time. But the people you know and you've known and had relationships for a long time, you want to show you care and not fake showing you care, but really care. And I've been with my wife 21 years and some of these people have been with me longer than I've been with my wife. I think we, we offer people a really great place to work. You know, one thing you have to remember as a business owner, nobody wants to work. You know, I used to tell the ladies in my office, hey, it'd be nice to be Mrs. Learner. You know, it's a nice life. You get to, you kind of travel a lot. You live in a couple different places around the country. It's, you've been blessed. But you know what? It ain't in the cards for everybody. And so when you guys are here, I'm going to try to make this the best nine hours a day you spend, you know, eight hours plus your hour of lunch. I want this to be the best place because I know the way we treat our people the respect we show them, the way we make them feel important, that affects when they go home. It affects their personal life with their husband, with their wife, with their children. I mean, I never wanted to be that boss that was yelling at people or denigrating people. I don't think I've ever yelled at anybody in 29 years. Sure as heck have fired people. You know, we give you enough chances to rehabilitate yourself, but some people are past rehabilitation. But I don't ever yell at people. It's not in my nature. One of our most popular and perhaps divisive episodes this year featured Anthony Johnson, someone who's no stranger to innovation in the legal industry. Anthony shared how he earned the moniker of America's techiest lawyer. It was like my first or second year, maybe my second year of practice. And it, it goes to show kind of how the industry is too, because what happened was there was somebody submitted at me for this American Bar Association kind of top techiest lawyers in America list. And I think the premise of my submission was something around how we were completely cloud-based. We had cloud phone systems. You know, we were all digital uh, files. We didn't have any, we were a paperless office. And so just like the bar in 2013, maybe 2012, whenever that was, uh, to be one of America's techiest lawyers, it just dawned on me like how relatively low I thought, <laughs> I thought it was. Either that or I just wasn't really, I didn't think I was deserving to be at it at that time. So it's, it's, it's amazing how far we've come since then. Uh, but I guess that a moniker is not a bad brand, I guess, to get early on. Anthony also shared his perspective on opportunities to leverage data in your law firm, including his thoughts on data ownership and data privacy. It's interesting. Recently, uh, maybe six months ago, I had a conversation with a guy that was very early at Facebook and like, you know, helped with, you know, understood the algorithm and actually was taught it and all that kind of stuff. And we were talking about uh, data from the standpoint of quantity. The first thing he told me was he goes, you have no data. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, Facebook has all the data. So like, when you step back and think about that, it's like quantity is really not the key when it comes to data. It is because what happens is if you think that you're collecting enough data to be useful versus somebody like Facebook or Google that actually has that data, uh, you actually have zero. And so then you kind of target, you kind of interact with the data differently. It's like, okay, how can I give indications to that larger set of data that actually lets them use their own data better? So it's a little bit of, it's a nuanced distinction, but it, but it really flips the coin on the head when it comes to how much data we have. So I look at quantity of data from a throughput perspective for testing. So a lot of lawyers have a lot of data. All of them don't know Dick what to do with it. <laughs> they, they don't know how to like that. Yeah, I've got all the, I got 50,000 records of clients from the past or whatever. Okay, cool. Run me a report on 27 year olds that were smokers uh, that you settled or referred out in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Like that's not even that hard. 
<laughs> but I guarantee they couldn't do it. So it's the fact that they had a quantity of data is not that helpful. It's the fact whenever you have a quantity of data, your ability to architect understanding and to structure data and to structure information in a way that you can test that feedback loop. So you throw the information through it, you see if you're right or not, you kind of incrementally iterate, proving out this architecture. And so that's what quantity is for, because once you have that, the data is out on the internet, whether it's, you know, it's Facebook or Google or whatever. And once you have this machine that could digest data, and that's kind of what's changing right now in the market. Once you can digest the data, your understanding is exponential because all the data lives on the internet. It's not that hard to get. So that's kind of how I approach it. It's about really architecting this fundamental understanding of how data works and how we can use the information we're getting at a certain bandwidth in order to iterate that feedback loop, improve it, and then try to get to some curated kind of stress test version of what data should look like in an industry and then convince everybody else to use it, which is actually the easy part. Whenever there's a conversation about data, it often leads to a discussion on data privacy. However, Anthony believes most ignore the larger issue at hand. The way I look at it, it's not really a problem with data privacy. It's the problem with data ownership, I believe. So the thing is, is that I look at data that it's either private, you know, it's something that I have and I understand and I own or I control, or it's public and it's out in the public sphere and no one else should really own it. And so it's about the ownership of data, which does have an effect on privacy, because if you get these centralized uh, hubs of people that own data, whether it's it used to be the government, but really they're not even the big power anymore. Now they're actually borrowing the data from Google and Facebook, you know, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. But if you have these small number of entities that control these hubs of data in a centralized way, because that's actually, you know, whether it's Amazon Cloud or Azure or whatever, they're actually the ones holding the data and controlling the flow of information, then it's really in the power of their hands to, to make the rules of how that that data is delivered to the world. The problem is when you have a person owning that centralized database, they don't really have the incentive to be the police. You know, like those guys are advertising. They are, it's almost like putting your hands in and making that decision, like from like a godlike stance of the, the infrastructure to say, that's not allowed, this is allowed. And so the way I look at it is that the only way, there's no way to play the rules of that game, the centralized game. There's no way to beat Facebook at being the best social media company or the most used one. It's just too late. They're too big. And so the only way to disrupt that industry is to kind of change the rules. And the only way to change centralized database and the ownership of data and the way it's structured today is to figure out a way to start siphoning that data into a new world, whether it's decentralized or, or quantum database or something like that, to where it can build on itself. So that's kind of the only way to truly regulate something as large as the internet is to get everyone access to it in the same way and let it curate itself and self-organize. That being said, regardless of how it innovates, I think that there is an absolute version of the future for me that it goes one or two ways, that either the centralized people win and there's a handful of people that essentially can create tyranny over the world and, and, and control the masses because you got Tesla launching 40,000 satellites right now. You've got all these companies uh, that are going to control the internet and space. Well, what country regulates the internet and space? Country Amazon, country Google. You know, and so if they can do that, think about all the people in third world countries that now have cell phones and what is your ability to now send a message to 4 billion people to get them to do what you want with the information we have when they have just been 10 years behind inundated with this godlike technology and somebody being able to control it. So I think that's one version of the future. And I think the only other version there is, is to figure out a new world where those people don't have that control. And there is this distributed power and this way to 
kind of self-organize and crowdsource the kind of the new way to hold data. And I think it's inevitable and plan to be part of it. Anthony and I spoke at length about quantitative metrics and how being data-driven is a tremendous competitive advantage for law firm owners. However, interestingly enough, in recent years, Anthony has invested heavily into his firm's brand and brand marketing, something that's almost impossible to directly measure. I wanted to know how his perspective had evolved over the years of running his law firm and what he's doing differently now versus when he first started out. Yeah, so it's interesting It's because I started down the path of being very micro on quantitative measures. Um, and that's how the, the digital marketing movement started. You know, we were able to track every click and every call and all this stuff. But over the past, you know, two or three years, you know, in understanding this more and starting to move up the funnel and starting to understand kind of the effect of brand, you realize there's a lot of information out there that says most people, you know, um, touch the brand on four different platforms before they actually connect. They might see you on mobile, they might see a billboard, they might see you on social or video. So people went from this ROAS metric, which is return on ad spend with digital marketing, where you tie Facebook spend to profit or uh, Google spend to certain return on ad spend to going almost backwards and flipping it again to return on uh, like ROI, uh, which is almost more of a macro metric from like a finance perspective. It's like you deploy this capital on this strategy, you might have allocations for brand um, for kind of a cross pollination top of funnel that may not be specifically linked to conversion, but gives you lift on the whole company. And so once you started operating at a level where where you have enough of this uh, underlying traffic and foundational audience to to impact that with brand, it, it, you can't really measure incrementally or at least quantitatively the direct impact of brand on every single lead you have. But if you look at it from a more macro perspective, you almost have to step back, which is weird for me to say. And you have to look at when I spend this more money on that brand, you know, you you see what you did compared to everything else you did, and you see the lift throughout the whole company, and you have to really look at that metric from more of a, you know, qualitative and uh, more macro perspective. So this is really interesting to me because, it, it, as you and I know, I mean, you know, both in uh, in the legal groups that we're a part of, and you see some of the most successful firms in the nation, and there's oftentimes a correlation between they're they're also very heavily investing in their brand and whatever that is, whether it's in more traditional mediums like TV and billboard, or in you know digital like online, social, PPC, SEO, you know whatever it might be. But there's always a very heavy brand investment, and yet it's oftentimes one of the least trackable things you can do. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm in this mastermind group that's pretty great that a guy runs. Uh, his name is Michael. Uh, but but so I was in there and it was a day where we focused on what's the best kind of marketing tactic. And of course, you know, I was like, well, I do a lot of this stuff. I was like, I felt like it wouldn't be that fascinating or novel at least. But what I realized was almost everybody's best tactic in the room was some type of brand play. And it, a lot of it wasn't even to do with legal. It was one of those things where... Uh, it was a you know community hometown hero campaign or something to where they they really got that that feelings connection with their audience, and then once I dug down more into like talking to the very successful, uh, especially personal injury law firms, I realized that a lot of the direct to consumer marketing, a lot of the digital marketing that's just more like leads based or whatever, maybe drives quantity. So it builds your audience, but it really just kind of pays the bills. Most of the time, it's lower injury cases. It's uh, it's uh, there's less of a Kind of emotional stickiness to your client and so what i what i dug into finally after a while is realizing that most people that are very successful they basically ba barely pay the bills maybe with their, their direct to consumer marketing but their brand marketing causes their second generation cases causes their their referral centers it causes uh evangelists of your tribe of your brand and of your firm 
And that is where they have exponential growth when it comes to profitability. So there's definitely a two-part component. And if you want to have success and profitability, if you don't have brand, you kind of lose that entire thing. And so we come full circle. From leveraging data in your practice to the power of building a well-known and trusted brand, I want to end this incredible roundup by revisiting one of my favorite episodes featuring the one and only Mark Lanier, someone who inspires and elevates the legal industry. When I started out, I was originally as a, uh, started as a defense lawyer. I was at this massive firm. At the time, it was called Fulbright and Jaworski. Now it's Norton Rose Fulbright. But I think I was like lawyer number 858. And I defended a lot of cases for a lot of businesses. And I tried a case one time where I was defending the railroad. And looking back at it, it was apparent to me that we, we were at fault and we owed this money. But I thought that through my legal skills, I was going to be able to win anyway. I hadn't really lost any cases at that point in time. I'd tried uh, uh, dozens of cases and dozens and dozens. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to win this. I'm going to win the unwinnable case and blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, I lost. The jury returned a verdict for 550000 It's a case I could have settled for 500000 I did not settle it. I lost. The jury returned more money than I could have gotten out of ahead of time. And I realized as I was driving myself home that if I had won, it would have ruined the lives of a very good family. It would have been an injustice. And I would have used my skill to bring about something that that really is not a good achievement. It's not, I mean, who wants to say, yeah, I spent my life creating injustice and and I didn't want to do that. And that's when I made a, a critical decision that I wanted to go on my own. I wanted to pick the cases I wanted to pick and I wanted to represent people that had been wronged. And that was one of those corners, one of those pivotal moments where you, you turn and it's a, in, in faith language, a, a Damascus Road experience where the scales of your eyes, you know, kind of fall off and you, you realize, okay, I've got a potent weapon here in my life and I need to use it for good. Mark's made his career on huge landmark cases. While many attorneys would land a seven or eight figure verdict and consider it a career case, Mark has numerous eight, nine, and even 10-figure verdicts under his belt. So what does Mark do that's different? How exactly is he getting so many huge verdicts time and time again? How we conduct pretrial discovery with an idea that we're going to try the case is very different than the way I think most people are doing it. How we take depositions is very different than the way most people are doing it. How we take an expert's deposition, an opposing expert, very simple. I've got a process for doing that that will allow me to send a novice lawyer out for the most important critical expert in the trial. And if that novice will follow my five-step rule for that deposition, it will be everything I need for trying the case. Uh, so if the preparation is different for us, I've got very certain, stringent, certain rules for how to put on witnesses, for what order to put on witnesses. There are four critical moments in every trial and how you identify those moments and how you handle those moments are absolutely key. There's a whole area of litigation science that's involved not just in jury selection, but it's involved in communication theory and how you present things, how you 
persuade, uh, how you get people's minds around damages and, and thoughts like that, uh, how you move people from knowledge to motivation. Those are two different things. And, and some of this is information, but some of it's also wisdom. And, and I, I think you probably know the difference between the two, but if you don't, here's an example. Information is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. Uh, uh, you cross that line somewhere. And so I try really hard to teach people not just to know what to do, but to be wise in how they do it. Mark is also an advocate of knowing thyself. So how does he balance between being a chameleon in the courtroom while remaining authentic? I think the more we know and understand ourselves, the more honest we'll be with ourselves. And I think it translates in front of a jury because juries, especially the younger jurors, but all jurors seek authenticity. Uh, I mean, don't we all seek that? I can be on your podcast, Michael, and I can give fake answers and people could sniff that out. And once they do, they discount everything else that I say. Or I can try to be authentic to who I am, try to be genuine. And in the process, people may not agree with everything I say, but they'll at least respect the fact that I'm trying to give them what I believe to be the truth. And so one of the hardest parts for me as a trial lawyer is let, let me take a step back and, and give you some insight as to how this developed with me. When I was young, we moved around all the time. My dad worked for the railroad in the business end of the railroad, and he got transferred often. So I was born in Dallas. I'm Texas. I moved to Fort Worth. I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, then to New Orleans, Louisiana, then to Abilene, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, Lubbock, Texas, all by middle school. And when you move around that much, you're constantly making new friends. You're learning new ways to talk. When I was in second grade in Memphis, Tennessee, I'd talk like a Memphis, Tennessee kid with a Southern accent and y'all and everything else. But then in the middle of that year to move to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I had a teacher who was incensed that I would use the word y'all and a teacher who didn't like me saying vegetable because it was vegetable. And I would get in trouble in class if I didn't say things the way she wanted them said. You learn to become almost chameleon-like in the way you deal with different cultures and different aspects of things. Now, that's been a big boon to me as a trial lawyer. I have no trouble going to New York and trying cases. I tried many cases in New Jersey, uh, California, uh, you know, coast to coast, north and south, Midwest, you name it. I'll go anywhere, and, and I do fine fitting into that. But the, the, the negative to it is you have a tendency, or at least I have a tendency, to imitate the people around me. I have trouble talking to someone who speaks with a Hispanic accent without almost uh, subconsciously putting a Hispanic accent into my voice. And so I worked for one lawyer for a while who was really, really successful and really good. And I thought, man, this guy's amazing. But he was also inherently a rather brash, if not downright mean person. And so when he would interact with people in a courtroom, he did it in a brash, if not downright mean way. And so my work with him would give me a tendency to try to 
to imitate or emulate that same thing. And yet I, I'm not really a brash, downright mean person. I tend to be uh, uh, the opposite end of, of that pendulum swing, I hope and I believe. And, and so it came across inauthentic to my actual nature. And I had to realize, and, and I reached a point one day where a lawyer from Florida said to me, it was David Lipman. David said to me, Lanier, how many cases did you have to try before you realized you just need to be yourself? And I said, David, I can remember exactly when I turned that corner because there came a time where uh, it was no longer be the chameleon imitating those that, that are successful. It was rather learn their tools and what makes them successful, but integrate them into who you are as a person. Be authentic to who you are. And that authenticity will pass the smell test with your audience, be they jurors or be they a church congregation. Let's shift gears you know, to the trial aspect. And with some of these, you know, the opposition you've been going up against, like a Johnson & Johnson, for example— do you get nervous you know, walking into a courtroom when, when you're facing, let's say, a Johnson & Johnson? No, I don't get nervous. I get excited. You know, it, it's really interesting. And this, this again, is, is part of how I try a case from out of my faith. You know, I'm in there because I think this is where God wants me to be. It's that clarity of purpose you were talking about before. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm in here... You know, David wasn't nervous when he was picking up the stones and he was about to fight Goliath, even though Goliath was a giant that had frightened the rest of Israel. David's attitude was, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to taunt the armies of God? This guy's a fool. He picks up the stones and the rest of its history. We use David and Goliath uh, uh, as a, an apt illustration in all aspects of culture today. So I, I kind of get excited. It's kind of like, I can't wait to do this. And, and it's really interesting because generally, I think a lot of the defense lawyers I've been against don't have that same level of excitement. I think they do tend to have nerves. And I can't tell you how many cases where I've gone up to them knowing we've got a packed courtroom, knowing that opening statements are about to be given to not just a packed courtroom, but to a lot of media that are present, newspapers, uh, even TV cameras, et cetera. And I'll walk up to the other side before the jury comes in. And I'll stick my hand out there and shake my hands and say, guys, isn't it a great honor that we get to do this? Can you believe we've got this chance to do this today? I want to wish you guys the very best in this. And, uh, uh, you know, if we don't pause before these moments and recognize we're getting to do something few people get to do, and we, we, and we don't zealously relish this moment, then heaven help us. So, so enjoy it, guys. I'll see you at the other side. And they're like, uh, 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 gee, uh, 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 yeah, I guess. And it's almost intimidating to some of them because they're so nervous about this. And I seem to just be, uh, I mean, I feel like I've got a day at the beach. This is just a cool chance to do something really fun. And as we soon come to a close, here are some parting words of wisdom from Mark Lanier. Ultimately, I think what I teach other people, at least, is, is to try to combine talent with hard work, with a diligent desire for truth and justice. 
And those are three aces that'll be hard to beat. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me on this first season of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next season as the Game Changing Attorney Podcast returns in January with an incredible lineup of market leaders and industry titans. We look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Thank you.